for light reading. I enjoy science fiction and fantasy literature, and I particularly enjoy authors who create imaginary worlds, complete with detailed maps and descriptions of the beings and the animals that inhabit these imaginary worlds, and even the struggles that go on in them. And I find that some of these writers have a significant understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. And in this context, one of the most interesting works that I have come across is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In Tolkien's fictional Middle-earth, the main characters, or at least some of the main characters, are hobbits. Hobbits are quiet, simple folk. Two of these ordinary folk are the heroes of the story, rather than the strongest or the wisest of those who dwell in Middle-earth. And hobbits have a very interesting custom regarding birthdays. Instead of throwing a party on their birthday and everyone bringing them a present, they throw big birthday parties and invite everybody around them to come, and they give gifts to everyone who attends. At first, that doesn't sound very good. I'm not sure I could sell it to an eight-year-old. <laughs> on my birthday, I'm going to get everyone a present rather than getting presents from everyone. But think about it. Rather than getting a gift once a year, a hobbit throughout the year gets a party and a present every time a friend or a family member has a birthday. There's a party, and they're invited, and they celebrate. This type of birthday celebration indicates that hobbits and Tolkien behind them have a significant understanding of what the parable of the prodigal son is about. Now, as we shift our focus to the parable, it's important to note that Jesus told this parable when the religious leaders of the day complained that he welcomed sinners and ate with them. The parable has three characters, a father and two sons. And the younger son appears first in the parable, and to say the least, he is self-centered. He is tired of life on the farm. And in fact, he's so tired of life on the farm that he throws decency to the wind and asks his father to give him the share of the family estate that will fall to him when the father dies. Now, as you can imagine, for a son, and particularly a Jewish son, to do this was a great insult to the father. In essence, the young man is saying, I wish you were dead. I want my share of the family wealth right now. And at this point, the father shows great restraint 
instead of disowning the young man, which would have been what usually happened, the father grants his request and divides the family property. And shortly after this, the young man apparently sells his share of the property and takes off to find the kind of a life that he longs for. Now, I grew up on a farm, and changes in property control and ownership are very destabilizing. The whole operation has to be scaled back if property is lost, and the whole operation has to be scaled up if property is gained. In addition to this, land for Jews was a sacred trust. When God brought them into the promised land, each of the 12 tribes and the families within those tribes were given a portion of land. And the families were never to be permanently separated from that land. It was a sacred gift from God. That's what the year of the Jubilee every 50 years was about, when all of the debts were to be canceled and people were to start over. What the young man is doing is giving his father a double blow. Not only does he demand his inheritance at the present, he immediately sells the land and alters the family's fortunes. But he's not done. Convinced that he can find a better life than the one his family is providing, he takes off to a far land and there he squanders his inheritance in loose living. Now, it's pretty easy for our imaginations to take off on that particular thing, but that's not really where the parable goes. What the parable tells us is that after he lost his money, there was a crop failure and food got scarce to non-existent and none of his new friends would offer him any help at all. And at this point, the young man discovers something that most of us discover in the course of our lives. The decisions that we make about the directions that we will go in life have unintended consequences. And to survive in the midst of the famine, the young man ends up going to work for a pig farmer. Now, think about this. Here he is, a Jew, who would normally have nothing to do with pigs because they were unclean, basically being forced, for lack of any other option, to abandon whatever is left of his religious beliefs and training and take care of the pigs. Not surprisingly, at this point, the young man considers where his actions have gotten him, and he realizes that he has made a royal mess of his life. He has insulted his family, ruined his business prospects, and abandoned his religious training and beliefs. He decides perhaps in the first good decision that he has made for some time, that the best option available to him is to return to his father, admit his sin, and ask to be taken in, not as a son, but as a hired servant. And he sets out for home. And at this point, the story 
really becomes interesting because the actions of the father, at least for that time, are most unusual. Usually a Jewish father who had been shamed by a son as this father had been would have disowned that young man. Instead, we learn that this father has been eagerly waiting for his son's return. And as soon as he catches sight of him coming up the road, he runs to meet him. Something that no self-respecting Jewish patriarch of the time would have done. He kisses the young man, and as the young man launches into his confession, the father, for all practical purposes, shushes him. And he says to the servants, bring a robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Most biblical scholars would agree that this is a picture of the incredible grace of God that gives us forgiveness and restoration in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, this is a gift we all stand in need of. We are much more like the prodigal than we're comfortable admitting. We are all sinners who need to repent. We have all rebelled against God in some way. We tend often to put our faith in ourselves and our abilities rather than in God. And like a child, we end up saying, I'll do it myself. Perhaps it was the choice of a career or making a mess of a marriage or thinking that a child should do certain things when their gifts inquired them and equipped them to do something very different. Perhaps it was getting so caught up in getting ahead that we begin to stray away from what we knew to be right. Perhaps it was a gift that we simply didn't develop. Sports, music, something else. Perhaps the desire to relax and to have fun became so strong that we abandoned our responsibilities to make the community and the world a better place to live. No matter what we have done or left undone, the extravagant grace of God invites us to repent and to return to God who anxiously waits for us to forgive and to restore and to celebrate with us that we might become all that God intends us to be. God's grace is an absolutely incredible, extravagant gift given to us that needs to be celebrated. Now at this point, the parable takes another interesting turn. 
the elder son comes in from his work in the field and he hears the noise of the party and when he learns what it's for he is consumed by resentment and jealousy little brother who wasted the family's wealth is getting a party and not just a party he's getting the party of the year when what he should be getting is the punishment he deserves. Now, logic tells me that when the younger brother left, the older brother had to work even harder, and he resented both the work he had to do and the liberties that his brother took and that he didn't take. And his response to the father is, all these years I have worked for you like a slave. I've never disobeyed you. And yet you've never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now again, the, the father has shown extravagant, amazing grace to his son. He has left the party that was going on, which was a major breach of etiquette for the time, in order to persuade his older son to come and rejoice at his brother's return. And at this point, the parable ends. We're not told whether the elder son comes in and joins the party. Now, as we reflect on this, our initial reaction is that we would never refuse to acknowledge God's grace. But while we may not say someone is not deserving of God's grace, we don't usually think they should have a wonderful party after making a mess of their own life and probably the lives of others. Welcome them home, but give them bread and water, and let them prove that they are worthy of more. I think reflection on the older son's reaction is indeed instructive for those of us who have long been a part of the church and who have been with the Father always, that we might have our eyes opened to another dimension of our sinfulness. Pride, jealousy, anger, and self-righteousness are all the more appalling when we know that as beneficiaries of God's extravagant grace, we should be engaged in the rejoicing that accompanies the return of the prodigal. And yet sin mars our redemption and hinders our sanctification. We find it all too easy to assume the worst about others, like the elder son embellishing his brother's story with prostitutes. Our jealousy and pride often compel us to exaggerate the shortcomings of others. We tend to think, first of how the events of the day may affect us rather than how they 
affect and enrich the body of Christ. We cling to our tried and true ways of doing things, wishing that someone would simply acknowledge our faithfulness, if not with a fatted calf, at least with a small goat. Far too often, we claim as our own the standards of the world, where punishment is valued more than mercy and much more than extravagant grace. As we reflect on this parable, we need to remember that Jesus told the parable in response to religious leaders who criticized him for eating and spending time with sinners. And in this context, behind this parable, lies a profound and overwhelming truth about God and God's kingdom. We humans are all lost, mired in the sins of greed, sensuality, and self-justified resentment, etc. We are hip deep in the pig slop of envy. Before we were even remotely aware of God's extravagant grace, God reached out to creation in the people of Israel and then in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God leads us, each of us, each person. God calls to repent and to come home. This parable is about that extravagant grace and celebrating it. It's not simply about my sin or your sin or whether I'm worthy or you're worthy. It is about God's extravagant, life-giving grace. Every time God's active, stretching, healing grace finds someone and calls that person back home, it is time to celebrate. It's time for a party, more feasting, more music, more dancing. It's time for a bigger party. Maybe those hobbits are on to something. May God's extravagant grace reshape our attitudes and our actions so that we are truly open to celebrate what God is doing in our midst.